right. Thanks for listening while we take that short break here at Revolution Radio FreedomSlips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host. Welcome back. This is the second hour of the live Truth Jihad Radio, broadcasting out of an old ice cream trailer deep in the woods of western Wisconsin. Seeking truth and spreading it, super spreading it, some say, all over the internet airwaves since 2006. Bringing perspectives that are ignored, suppressed, distorted, or out-and-out censored in the corporate-controlled mainstream. Today, let's see, we're moving on to the second hour with Benoit Campmark. Benoit Campmark uh, is a, an academician. He's out of Australia, where it's actually Saturday. It's Friday here in the States, where I am. And he publishes a lot of good stuff. He's pretty prodigious over at Counterpunch, among other places. And I noticed his great article on Daniel Hale, the drone whistleblower who just got 45 months in prison for telling the truth about horrific crimes. It's all the other people that were doing what he was doing but didn't repent of it who really should be in prison. And uh, Dr. Kempmark's article on Daniel Hale was excellent, and he followed that with a very interesting and provocative piece on Afghanistan, which looks to be, once again, the graveyard of empires. So let's let's get into it. Welcome, Benoit Kempmark. How are you? It's a pleasure being with you again. Yeah, good to have you back. Uh, well, let, let's start with, with Daniel Hale. I mean, this is kind of so obvious that this is a decent human being whose conscience wouldn't allow him to keep committing mass murder, uh, blowing up innocent civilians for the most part. And I don't know whether he fully recognized that even the few guilty people that were being blown up are actually the best people in Afghanistan. They're the heroes who are fighting to liberate their country from imperialist invaders who are also war criminals. So by definition, the targets of these drone strikes are the very best people in, in Afghanistan. However, the drones are so inaccurate and the program is so insane that they end up blowing up mostly innocent people at wedding parties for every hero that they blow up. And Daniel Hale uh, kind of revealed a little bit of that truth. And so he's heading for prison. Um, it just goes to show what kind of world we're living in, doesn't it? Yes, I agree with you, Kevin. I mean, this has been uh, an astonishing state of affairs. And, uh, and I think the bitter and bloody irony, as you pointed out, is precisely the, the fact that what the drone program is supposedly meant to do and supposedly achieve has um, it's quite the opposite about what it's intended to do at all. And so it was, um, not only was there an issue of, um, you know, the conscience matter involves also the fact that the exposure of this grotesquely ineffective and brutal program, uh, when it was exposed, the person exposed it, of course, uh, was the one who goes to prison, uh, which continues a long pattern with whistleblowers, of course, you know, with uh, when John Kiriakou, formerly of the CIA, exposed um, you know, the waterboarding torture programs and so on being deployed by the organization. He was the one who ended up spending time in prison rather than the individuals perpetrating the acts. So yet again with Hale, we see this um, ongoing disturbing pattern uh, when it comes to dealing with whistleblowers and also the exposure of these kind of programs. In your article, you uh, pointed out that this sentence of 45 months in prison is quite monstrous in view of the fact that it's the good guy that's going to prison to cover up for all of the war criminals. Um, I did see another uh, analysis. I think it was over at antiwar.com 
and uh, they were saying that, you know, it could have been a lot worse, and he should be out in less than a year and a half, which, of course, a year and a half in, a, in prison is is pretty horrendous. Uh, frankly, you know, I, I've had an argument with folks. Some folks really think that all forms of corporal punishment are horrible, but if you've ever actually been locked up, you know, try to imagine what it's actually like to spend a year and a half or, you know, even a week and a half in prison. Uh, I think if you went to a prison and you offered the guys in there, you know, if if we can chop off your hand and let you out, you're free. Would you take that deal or are you going to serve the rest of your sentence? I would predict probably the majority of the prison would be happy to have their hands chopped off. So, so much for the idea that the, uh, the, the traditional Islamic punishments are so brutal, uh, especially since they're so rarely enforced. Uh, and, but in any case, this, uh, this take over at antiwar.com was that since he'll be out in a year and a half instead of 10 years, which is, you know, actually serving 10 years, which is what he was looking at, this was actually a victory in a way, about as much a victory as we're likely to see for his defense team. So, you know, I guess that's kind of the, uh, the silver lining on a very dark cloud. Yes, I, I think to a certain extent, you, know, you can understand the sentiment that it could have been worse. Certainly the um, prosecuting attorneys uh, by Gordon Kronberg, who, by the way, of course, is also one of those who figures uh, in the attempt um, of extraditing Assange. She's part of the prosecution there. He also has a very similar grasp on reality when it comes to prison conditions, I might add. And then Kronberg was the one was submitted in, a, in his paperwork, as it were, to the old Bailey in the extradition trial that um, the conditions facing should Assange be extradited uh, were actually rather pleasant, uh, congenial sort of facilities, um, whereas, of course, you know, that's simply not the case. Um, speaking, you know, about and referring to your comments about spending time in, you know, even shorter period of time in, in prison, certainly in the U.S. context, but you find that, of course, where Hale's currently being kept in the Northern Neck Regional Jail, and the conditions are absolutely lamentable. I mean, they're absolutely awful. So, you know, it, it's true that the prosecution was seeking an even more severe sentence. They argued that it should be actually greater you know, than that uh, of the NSA contract of reality winner. They did say that this was very serious. They wanted to, a deterrent. Uh, the judge... Um, then Grady did say that, uh, that he took certain things into account in, in terms of the sentencing, but the reality is that it was a brutal sentence, and I think there's not, not too much to cheer about it from that context either. Right. Absolutely not. It's, you know, between this and so many other uh, outrageous abuses going on, you know, it starts to make some of us <laughs> identify with folks around the world who've decided to sort of embrace a revolutionary mentality and say, you know, this can't be salvaged. You know, we're, we need to pick up the gun against these people. And uh, I can kind of relate to that. Uh, the, the drone program in particular may, you know, pushes me towards that kind of uh, mentality because it's, it's just so absurd and evil and cowardly, you know, the way these, these people are uh, hiding behind their little computer monitors and, and murdering all these people, mostly randomly, uh, along with the occasional heroes that they kill, and uh, and somehow sleeping at night, and then the, the guy who blows the whistle on it gets goes to a, a horrible uh, torture prison. And, you know, we know how bad American prisons are. 
just from looking at what the Mexican drug people do, you know, they, they'll do anything to get to a Mexican prison. If it's, you know, if they're busted for something where they have, you know, American crimes and there could be deportation to a Mexican prison, they always want to go to the Mexican prison. Mexican prisons are not exactly pretty, you know, they're flies and cockroaches and uh, not the best conditions. But compared to the American prisons, at least they're human. And, and, you know, that tells you something that most folks would rather go to uh, semi third world conditions in, in prison rather than spend time in American prisons. So this is the, the cruelty and evil of American prisons in general is uh, is so over the top. And then putting the good people, the, the rare heroes and good people in these prisons to punish them for, uh, you know, for I mean, fr frankly, the people that haven't done what Daniel Hale has done. In, in the drone program, as far as I'm concerned, they need to all be, well, I better bleep it out because I'll get deplatformed. But, uh, you know, I don't know. Do you, do you I, I just viscerally get really, really pissed off about this particular issue. Uh, you, you're able to write pretty calmly and dispassionately about it. But I'm wondering if, if you kind of share my extreme outrage. Oh, I, I, I do think it's, um, you know, there is a sense of, uh, sense of rage that, I do have to say that, and that's certainly it's a case of sort of channeling, channeling into, you know, using words as weapons and trying to find a way of understanding the, the viciousness of it. <coughs> but, but the reality of it, of course, is that these, and in reference to your remark about uh, stirring a revolutionary interest, there's no question that with these sorts of conditions, uh, you, you would understand why there would be an upsurge of discontent and outrage and so forth, you know, and that actually the military establishment and the prison establishment, you know, they are linked here, are culpable in, and would be culpable in creating people, not even necessarily conscience-driven like Hale, but individuals who want to, you know, take their revenge, as it were, in various ways. And so when, when people talk about, you know, domestic terrorism in the U.S. or the upsurge, and they have issues with the central government, and have issues with the state, you know, you have to sort of start saying, well, you know, some of their arguments are not necessarily unsound. <laughs> this is, you know, the a huge problem with the Imperium, the way it functions and, and how it engages in operations overseas. So, yes, some individuals locally will have deep mistrust with the authorities. And so I think from that perspective, it's uh, your, your comments are very understandable and absolutely justified. And, of course, we're seeing more of that uh, kind of, you know, readiness for revolt on the right in the U.S. than on the left these days. And when Joe Biden recently said, uh, we don't really need the Second Amendment, or yeah, I forget the exact context and the exact words, but he was essentially dismissing the importance of the Second Amendment as a kind of check on government power because he, he said something like, uh, well, your, you know, your automatic weapons, your automatic rifles are not going to defeat the helicopter gunships and nuclear weapons that we've got. Uh, and I think he was sort of talking about the pro-Second Amendment people who tend to be on the right politically, and uh, some of them are angry right now about their comrades in prison, the people that got swept up in the January 6th uh, uprising, and a whole lot of those people got in prison, and some of them, it looks like they were just kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time. They were not necessarily all people who were actually assaulting police and things like that. Uh, but when Biden said that, you know, you, you can't use the Second Amendment to try to keep a check on the government because we have the nukes and the helicopter gunships and, and we'll wipe you out, 
uh, he was saying that at almost exactly the same time that he was pulling out of Afghanistan, admitting that his tail had gotten kicked by the Taliban. So, I mean, maybe the Taliban's victory is going to inspire people to say, look, this American uh, evil empire, can, if it can be beaten by a bunch of you know, ragtag people in Afghanistan, maybe it can be beaten elsewhere. Yes, I, I think that's a very good point. Uh, the, the defeat, or, you know, and certainly in the context of the uh, Taliban's gains um, of recent and um, their skillful approach to dealing with uh, the U.S. has been in many ways quite, quite remarkable and not, in some ways not necessarily that surprising because the, the empire was really running out of gas you know, in terms of its operations. But the, you know, to take up your point there um, regarding the... Um, the so-called domestic insurrectionists and so on. I think the, those who protested in January are being made, of course, many of them are being made scapegoats of a broader national security program. And in due course, uh, we can expect more of that, more in terms of surveillance, more in terms of under the guise of an inquiry, under the guise of an investigation, um, even though, of course, you know, there are you know, legitimate security concerns in some cases. But the fact of the matter is the... The, the right, as it were, the sea, you know, in, in its various manifestations is being treated uh, and demonized in a very convenient way by individuals in the Biden administration. And your point about the Second Amendment, well, yes, the whole point of the Second Amendment is precisely to keep in check, you know, the very kind of attitudes that Biden did express. And so having that kind of sentiment, it's a very dangerous one. It's actually also very foolish because instead of actually seeking to you know, douse the flames uh, uh, that were, of course, created during the Trump times. He's actually serving to do quite the opposite and, and uh, feed, as it were, the very forces that he's trying to stem. Indeed. And a lot of people on the right are not that happy with the various forced vaccination plans and the, the whole uh, COVID rollback of freedom. And I'm, I'm wondering if things might get a lot hotter if they actually decide to do things like um, put out vax passports for flying, for example, there was just an article in the Atlantic arguing it was by a former, I think Obama national security advisor, anti-terror type saying that we need to make sure that nobody who hasn't been vaccinated should be allowed to fly. Now, if they do that, I think a lot of these people, mostly on the right and libertarian side of things, uh, those who have chosen not to get vaccinated, finding themselves unable to fly on commercial aviation. I mean, I think they're going to start shopping for rocket launches or something, you know, listening to Bruce Coburn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, uh, I think you, you certainly have a point about, uh, you know, you, you'll have this perverse situation where um, the, un, the world of the unvaccinated meets the, the you know, the no-fly list. Uh, in that context. And so, yes, it, it's a very serious risk and, um, you know, little wonder that there are, you know, riots and protests taking place in France and Italy as we, as we speak, you know, precisely about these sorts of things, because uh, it is a genuine concern about discrimination and about uh, creating hierarchies of individuals. And yes, for all the merits, you know, that one can say about vaccination, a, a compulsory system that limits people's access to services that are just as a standard given, and so forth. This is a very dangerous thing to do, and certainly from a policy perspective, it's a it's a no-brainer. It's, it's, it's absolutely silly, you know, to uh, foment this kind of discord, which is exactly what you expect would happen in these instances. So yes, um, 
and the these suggestions and of course and the suggestion about also restricting and discriminating with uh, you know global vaccine passports and so on you know when it comes to individuals such as you mentioned Obama um, former official of the Obama administration um, but that's consider former British Prime Minister Tony Blair whose institute uh, is promoting this line and anything that comes out of that institute you know when it comes to so-called free trade movement of people when it comes to you know, mandatory vaccination passports that that is something to be looked at with deep suspicion well australia has seen some pretty big protests in fact i think on what was it called something like world De- worldwide demonstration day organized by some germans the biggest protests and the ones that got the biggest pushback were actually in australia and some of the officials in australia were really using some harsh and almost foul language against the protesters. So maybe you can fill us in a little bit about what the scene is like in Australia, where it seems like the the lockdowns have been extremely severe, maybe the most severe in the Western world, and now we've seen some of the biggest protests. Yes, the people's tempers are just frayed, um, and even even for those you know, who would not necessarily get out of protests, you know, they're suffering silently because the you know, currently, as, as we're chatting, in fact, um, you know, a good deal of the eastern seaboard in Australia is under um, very severe lockdown. Um, Victoria has just entered, in fact, its sixth lockdown, uh, so the state of Victoria. So are you um, allowed to, to talk on the radio during lockdown? <laughs> yes, that is permitted. Yes, we, we can share words and, and communicate in that. As long as we don't say anything that could be construed as medical misinformation. <laughs> yes, yes. One has to be careful about that. Otherwise, yes, uh, deplatforming off uh, various things might happen. Platforms, as we know. Um, and recently, of course, you, know, you may you would have probably heard some many of your listeners that Sky News, in fact, in Australia, was deplatformed from YouTube. Um, is, is that a given, Mur- that's a Murdoch operation, right? Yes, yes, that's right, that's right. So it's quite interesting uh, what's happening in that context. They haven't been permanently the platform, but uh, for, for spreading misinformation. I'm not, I'm not so a big fan of Murdoch. I mean, if he could personally be somehow deplanetized and you know, sent off into space with Bezos and, and Gates, I'd be all in favor of that. But uh, but no, seriously, though, this uh, cracking down on, on media uh, is, is really getting out of control. Um, and Yes, uh, I agree. And, and I, I'm as likewise with you, and I've, I've never been a fan. I've had very much an opponent of, of Murdoch and the Murdoch Empire, the News Corp, uh, Tentacle Empire, and so on. But uh, to see these kind of measures is very troubling, and um, and to see um, individuals uh, just just at the flick of a switch, the platforms like that and removed, and their speech restricted is, is very problematic. You know? But but in terms of the lockdown effects, yes, uh, they've they've been you know very deepening, and they will have very long lasting effects in the country and, and across the states, um, and they happen very quickly and. There are various philosophies about how they are meant to be applied, but Australia, you know, uniquely, well, along with New Zealand, they've adopted this elimination strategy, which is very harsh. So it means that essentially it's not just suppression, you know, it's not just, you know, the numbers plateau after this. It is, uh, you know, language of extermination. We try to exterminate the virus, run it into the ground. And so with that language, it means that the measures are very harsh. You can only leave your home for a certain number of reasons, uh, you know, matters of necessity, you know, shopping for essentials, um, items like that, uh, travel within five kilometer radius and so on, um, no visitors, all of that. Uh, but in addition to that, of course, these are punitively enforced. Um, the police get 
rather happy with uh, issuing these infringement notices and so on. So it's it's not a surprise that you know, protesters you know have been coming out. And of course, uh, after the sixth lockdown was announced, there were immediately protests in the city of Melbourne itself, as there've been protests in Sydney as as well. So you know, we do. It's, it is a desperate situation, actually, at the moment. And, of course, all of this is, remember, compounded by the fact that the Australian vaccination rollout has been a um, somewhat of a disaster. So that combined with that and uh, the slow pace of vaccination combined with this punitive method, you know, it has, it has, it's driving people to the edge. And I'm wondering if it's politicized in a similar way in Australia. Here, you know, the mainstream media, enemies of Trump, were supposedly so worried about Trump's authoritarianism and, and his possible dictator status and all of that. And then now suddenly he's gone and we have a sort of pseudo left-leaning uh, authoritarianism and the mentality is, is quite uh, starkly divided between the, the Democrat side, which is mostly marching in lockstep with all of the anti-COVID stuff. And then the Republican side is not. And, and all of the energy on the Republican side is with the protesters and the anti-lockdown, anti-mask, anti-vax people. So is, is there a similar sort of left-right split in Australian politics? Yeah, to a certain extent, it's not quite um, as sharply defined in that sense as it is in U.S. politics. But certainly um, in what has happened in Australia is, is quite interesting in that regard, because the, there's certainly been attention in because the governing you know, the government is, is a conservative government it's been you know in part for some years um, and there have been tensions in certain fields of policy in, in terms of how one approaches the matter of the pandemic on the one hand the Morrison government the conservative Morrison government has um, tried to embrace the open economy um, model uh, uh, far more than say many of the state governments you know the labor governments that have endorsed very hardline approach to the virus and, and COVID and so on. Uh, but recently, there's, there's been a convergence and understanding that uh, Australia will uh, essentially try to eliminate, as it were, keep to this elimination COVID zero strategy, which is proving you know, quite costly to say the least. And also there's an acceptance, and this is, this is also extraordinary. Um, there's been a kind of a bipartisan acceptance here that movement can be restricted on such a level. Australians, for example, many Australians cannot get back to Australia because there are restrictions and caps. And currently it's being debated in the federal court in Australia whether Australians even have a right to return because there's no mention of a right anywhere in the Australian constitution. Well, the Palestinians don't have a right of return, so why should Australians? Well, yes, indeed, indeed. Yes, yes. No, well put. Um, the, uh, that, that's the extraordinary thing. So, And in fact, uh, uh, this month, new regulations will be imposed, making it also difficult for Australians to leave Australia. So effectively, there's a kind of an imprisonment mentality that's taking place in terms of preventing people you know, leaving and coming into the country, which is quite quite remarkable. That's uh, quite quite interesting. How, how does it play into the rhetoric on China? I've, I've had Peter Myers on the show a few times. He's an interesting character who's described himself as a, a New World Order researcher, and he's, he's based in Australia. And, and he he's always uh, siding with sort of the anti-China arguments. And he, he seems to represent a certain uh, line of thought in Australia, which is, of course, closer geographically to China than the U.S. is. 
and maybe feels itself more on the front lines as the Anglosphere declines in power and uh, especially economic strength compared to China. And there are these big Chinese investments in Australia that people like Peter uh, worry about. So here in the U.S., interestingly, the same right wing that is kind of libertarian on COVID issues tends to be quite anti-China. And we have the what I would see as a kind of a false flag talking point that you know, COVID is all China's fault. It came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, et cetera, et cetera, which frankly, I think is a false flag. I think the U.S. hit China with COVID, as Ron Unz has described in his brilliant series of articles on this. But be that as it may, the, uh, the right-wing pro-Trump side here in the U.S. is viscerally anti-China. And I, I'm wondering, to me, that's all kind of a confusing because they're also generally more pro-peace. They, they think that Trump was going to keep us out of wars and things like that. Uh, so the whole political spectrum is really flipped from back when the, the left wing used to be the peaceniks and the libertarians. And now it's, it's the right wing that's a weird kind of populist peacenik and libertarian. But they're also anti-China. And the big geopolitical clash is the dominant Anglo-Zionist American empire trying to prevent the rise of China. And so the, the anti-war libertarian side is actually anti-China. So they're going to be easy to stampede into war against China if necessary. Uh, and anyway, I'm wondering how, how that plays out in Australia. Is there a similar situation where there's a sort of a, a populist libertarian right that is also anti-China and a pseudo-left establishment that's pro-China? Yeah, it's, it's slightly different in the Australian context because, you know, first of all, the um, – yeah, the libertarian context here um, and the link with China is not quite as strong as it is say, in the in the U.S. Uh, here. Generally speaking, you know, even the conservatives like that uh, sense of control. So not particularly libertarian, even though they might think they are. There there are streaks of it, libertarianism and so on. But when it comes to the issue of China, uh, the Morrison government and certainly um, you know and and also um, I would say a, a good swathe of um, individuals at the centre of Australian politics tend to see China as a threat and, and have gone absolutely you know, overboard about um, emphasizing that threat. You know, uh, politicians, for example, on the labor side who have been found to be um, you know, recipients of any donations from Chinese authorities, you know, be it a pen, be it a, you know, a, a, a dinner, a, a fundraising dinner and so on, have um, essentially been hounded out of their party. Uh, so there's been a, a very strong measure of uh, targeting China. Um, the recent introduction, for example, over the last, and I say recent, I'm talking about the past 18 months or so of legislation that specifically documents foreign, inter, you know, foreign interference and specifically takes issue with um, forces that might be deemed to be against the Australian national interest was very much framed with China in mind, even though China is not mentioned. So the Foreign interference legislation, security legislation that's been passed in the recent months. The target is very clear. The recent tearing up of agreements between the states, say with Victoria, the state of Victoria had a couple of uh, Belt and Road initiative agreements, which really on paper didn't say very much. They de dealt with education. There were prospects that companies in Victoria would do business, Chinese companies in China and then vice versa. But these were torn up by the foreign minister as being against uh, the national interest. Uh, and let's not forget when you mentioned the 
COVID, Australia was one of the first countries out of the blocks to call for what they called an independent inquiry. That sort of thing is very hard to imagine regarding the origins of COVID and the outbreak. And it was Australia that's been doing a lot of the, you know, being the stalking horse when it comes to the region. And there's a very strong group in Canberra, uh, which is dominated. And I think many Australian critics have said that the foreign policy um, grouping in Canberra uh, has been hijacked by the security intelligence grouping centered around individuals working at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, ASPE, which I should add also receives funding from U.S. Uh, defense corporations and from the U.S. government itself. We just don't know how much because they don't publish those figures. Really? Well, that's, <laughs> that, that seems like a conflict of interest. I guess <laughs> in Australia, you're, yes. allowed, <laughs> you're allowed to do that, though, if the money's coming from the U.S. If, if somebody were taking that kind of money from, from China or Russia or Iran, it uh, might not be looked on so kindly. That's exactly right. And in fact, I pointed this out a few times as well, that uh, the, it's all well and good to talk about uh, interference from China, you know, a, a Chinese corporation moving into a particular part of the Australian market. You know, for example, uh, the blocking by the treasurer um, of uh, an attempt, attempted purchase of uh, an Australian dairy corporation by, you know, by China, by a Chinese corporation that was blocked because it was a threat. And yet, um, very happily, um, agreements are permitted to be made between ASPE, you know, the Strategic Institute in Canberra, uh, and U.S. Uh, defense interests uh, that are not revealed in their fullness and transparently. Uh, and ASPE, no surprise, ASPE is the one that keeps uh, releasing reports almost on a weekly basis, talking about the danger China poses uh, into the Asia-Pacific and the need for uh, the U.S. to step up even more. See, a lot of it is also trying to almost incite the U.S., as it were, the U.S. interests to be more engaged in the event of a conflict uh, with Taiwan and so on. It's extraordinary the publications being released you know, by ASPE because they actually do talk about <laughs> um, war game scenarios over Taiwan. It's extraordinary. This is openly discussed. So the road to war is almost as if it's a given that it will happen and then Australia will be there with the U.S. fighting China. So it's quite remarkable to see the kinds of things coming out of Canberra these days. Yeah, that's interesting. These uh, scenarios around Taiwan that we're seeing from the hawkish Western think tanks uh, tend to assume that China would be launching a sneak attack on Taiwan. But realistically, China doesn't really need to. You know, they're playing a long-term game. And each year they get stronger vis-a-vis -vis the other side. And so they theoretically would probably want to just kind of wait until Taiwan falls like the proverbial ripe fruit into their lap. And the Western side, the, the hawks that want to fight over Taiwan, pretend that China is going to just invade and attack uh, suddenly, which seems somewhat unlikely. It's almost as if they're trying to set up some scenario where they can do a false flag or some other de deceptive kind of operation to make it look like China is attacking Taiwan so they can get, have the fight and, and get the fight done while they still think they can win. Uh, am I being too cynical? No, I don't think you're being too cynical. I think the you know, perhaps rather than even, uh, you know, because one, one may be giving them too much credit in terms of orchestrating something in a, in a, in a well-planned way, you know, false flag. I would say, 
it, they're creating the circumstances where they might, you know, be it through error, be it through an incitement, something like that. It might be just a, a skirmish in the Taiwan Straits. It might be something as simple as that. And that's all it takes, you know, for then, you know, uh, escalation of matters. And before you know it, several countries are involved um, and we're dealing with, um, you know, vicious scenario and so on. Um, the fact is there are some very, very um, sensible voices in Australia, individuals such as uh, the China specialist Kevin Brophy, who have simply said that you know, it's, it's bananas to think that uh, China would want to fight you know, a war, you know, a, a catastrophic, costly war over Taiwan. And in any case, and this has been pointed out by the former Australian Foreign Minister Gareth Evans, the, the fact is it's dangerous to even speculate whether you would win a conflict locally you know, against Chinese forces over a place like Taiwan. Why would they want to do that? Why would the U.S. even want to do that and so on? Um, and and so the comments um, by Xi Jinping, by President Xi Jinping, are always taken out of context. They're always seen in literal terms in, in Australian political speak, you know, as, as, you know, the idea that there would be fighting taking place. And all. No, they, they would not be fighting. They, they are playing, as you say, the long game. They're hoping for peaceful uh, process you know, to merge Taiwan into the, you know, into the mainland and so forth rather than actually expend weaponry and life over this. And this is something that these particular hawkish types uh, tend to ignore. They tend to see, you know, China's, well, almost repurpose this modern image of China as this expansionist power determined to conquer the globe. And, and maybe, again, I'm being cynical, but when I read these articles about uh, U.S. war games, in which they get, they always lose. There've been a, a number of alarmist kinds of uh, articles and reports from think tanks pointing out that in the recent war games over Taiwan, the U.S. loses horribly. And of course, one purpose of this kind of thing is to gin up money, to say, "Hey, we need more money to buy these weapons and ships because we're we're going to lose in Taiwan." But I also wonder whether they're not uh, clumsily trying to almost tempt China <laughs> to go ahead and, and try to take Taiwan. It's almost like they want it to happen. And it's it's not the same as, as these war games that came out in 2004 about uh, the U.S. losing to Iran. Those, I think, were actually put out by the, the more you know reasonable people who were cautioning the crazy neocons about their proposed war on Iran. And, and at that time, that would have been, of course, a war of U.S. aggression against Iran. So saying these war games show that we can't win it tends to discourage the uh, Cheney-linked aggressors from actually trying it. But when you see these same kinds of war games showing, oh, we're getting our butts handed to us by the Chinese in these war games around Taiwan, uh, that actually doesn't seem calculated to make war less unlikely because it's always assumed that the Chinese would be the aggressors. But as you say, the way it would really happen would be through some kind of series of miscalculations. And I, I would argue perhaps some sort of deliberate false flag scenario. Um, and, and, and so this is, you know, I, when, when I read the Western media, it's, it's just, it's always assumed that we in the West would never commit aggression and everything we're saying is the truth. And so this problem with Taiwan is that you know, China is this aggressor that's going to invade Taiwan 
And and then I look at the subtext, and it seems to be more like, you know, we'd better try to <laughs> gin up a war over Taiwan while we could still win it. Uh, but let's not admit that we think we can win it. Let's pretend that we're going to lose it. Yes, it's a, it's certainly um, a very valid point you make. Uh, I liken it actually to the, um, the various fictions that were spun through the Cold War regarding Soviet capabilities and so on, where one would have to speak about, of course, the superior capacity of the Soviet war machine to wage conflict in certain scenarios and so on. And, of course, most notoriously, the, the missile gap uh, notion, which was used to pump huge amounts of money into the, um, the, the establishment firing of weapons. And this seems to be very much of that kind of, um, you know, strain of thought, you know, very much of that notion that, well, you know, it looks like things are going to go badly in these scenarios if we face China, therefore we need, you know, more weapons, therefore we need expenditure. And that's certainly how it's playing out in Australia, because, the, you know, the language of, for example, acquiring an independent ballistic missile capability. That's that's the extraordinary thing that's being mentioned in Canberra at the moment. You know, the the increase of defence expenditure by the Australian government has been remarkable. Even during COVID times, statements are being made about uh, more expenditure in the hope that you know, more weapons will be acquired. This daft effort to acquire uh, these the attack class submarine in the hope of having a you know this maritime capability uh, again you know inspired as it were by this notion of uh, trying to deal with China and so on um, and that by the way that attack class project looks um, like it's going to be an abysmal failure twelve new submarines contracted with uh, a French company that's not proving too cooperative and not least because of course they're giving a nuclear submarine design that's not going to be run by a nuclear uh, propulsion, it's going to be run by diesel. So it's all, it's all going very strange then. There's a lot of, um, but I mean, the fundamental point about it is, is precisely drumming up the means you know, to get weapons, you know, to get more armaments. And yes, of course, therefore being a provocation, therefore ending up as a self-fulfilling situation. Indeed. And it, it, you know, you mentioned the missile gap in the U.S.-Soviet uh, conflict, and that was during the 1950s. And it turned out that missile gap was totally illusory. And by the early 1960s, when the Americans discovered that the Russians had been building empty silos and pretending that they were full of nuclear missiles, and they only had, a, Russians really only had a few nuclear missiles, and it turns out the gap was on the other side and far more extreme than they had realized. You know, they, they thought there was a gap, a pro-Russian gap, and it turned out that the Russians hardly, hardly had anything. And the reaction on the American side was, well, let's go ahead and get this war over with while we can still lose only 20 or 30 million people tops, you know, like in Dr. Strangelove. And Kennedy's advisors wanted World War III at that point because they thought they could utterly annihilate the Soviet Union, and they, their war plans were to annihilate China as well, and that, that's that for communism. Uh, you know, if you read uh, Daniel Ellsberg's work on this, among other whistleblowers, it's, it's completely crazy. And, you know, JFK pretty much single-handedly held off World War III, and the context was sort of like what we're seeing with China now, which is that they realized in the early 60s that very shortly the Russians are actually going to fill all those empty missile silos. They're going to catch up with us, and we won't be able to fight them and win uh, very, very soon. We need to do it now. And so that was why they wanted to turn the Cuban Missile Crisis into World War III, and they came very, very close to actually doing that. Well, today... Similarly, there's a rising challenger 
And we, we hear from the work on the Thucydides paradox, uh, Graham Allison and, and those people, that two-thirds of the time an established power faces a rising power, the established power resorts to all-out preemptive war against the rising power. So that would be the U.S. waging preemptive war against China. And some people, like Ron Unz and myself, think that COVID is probably some form of bio-war against China, regardless of whether it was just a simple screw-up and, and blowback, uh, took it out of China elsewhere, or, uh, or whether the scenario is actually more complicated than that. But in any case, we are seeing a, a kind of a rerun in a certain sense of that very dangerous moment in the early 60s when there was a challenger that was about to become invulnerable. The Soviets were about to become invulnerable in terms of their nuclear deterrent. And the Chinese now are about to become invulnerable in terms of their economic and hence technological advantage. And so the, the war party says, let's fight the war now while we still have a chance of winning. So that's a supremely dangerous moment. And I, I don't really see very much conscious awareness of this, at least not being revealed in open source material. How about you? Yeah, no, not, not very much either in, in terms of that, uh, from that perspective. You know, the, you know, but I think it's absolutely right that the mentality, very dangerously, it seems to have taken hold here, is that um, you know, if you develop the, certainly the rhetoric is being developed very intensely to lay the groundwork, that uh, if um, China is not dealt with earlier, um, you know, this is the time to do it and so on. It will then become, you know, immune or it'll be just impossible to rein it in. Very much of the attitude in the late 50s, early 60s. And, and yes, you know, when, as you say, when you know, Kennedy had to sort of rein in the uh, bellicose, um, you know, warmongering attitudes of the likes of Curtis LeMay and so on, and, and the mega-death intellectuals that actually thought it was all very sensible to do this sort of thing, we're seeing that kind of mentality appraise itself again. You know, we're seeing that, be it in terms of the armament drives, be it in terms of the statements being made, for example, by the Home Affairs Secretary, uh, you know, the, the, top, the top bureaucrat in Canberra by the name of Mike Pizzullo, who in his address in April this year uh, to his staff, actually openly spoke about the drums of war and essentially was saying that we must be prepared for that. We might like peace, but we must be really prepared for the threat to anticipate war. Interestingly enough, he, he really fondly uh, made reference to MacArthur at various points uh, in, his, in his speech. Um, and what he failed, of course, to mention was that it was MacArthur, of course, who had to be sacked by Truman for his... Uh, their suggestion that he could beat, that the U.S. could win in Korea and beat China in the process by the use of, say, 20 to 30, you know, um, you know nuclear weapons and bombs and so on. So, uh, and that, that's just astonishing. But that, I think, reveals, you know, the mentality of the kind of situation we're dealing with. Indeed. And, and that's a sober thing to reflect on right now when we're in the period of the, the anniversaries of Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki. That the you know, not only is the United States the only country that's actually used large nuclear weapons, some argue there may have been a few smaller uh, dialed down nuclear weapons used here and there in places like Lebanon and perhaps even Yemen. Uh, but in terms of the larger nuclear weapons, the U.S. is the only nation that's used them. And, and as you say, it was not unthinkable that uh, MacArthur would have gotten his way and used a bunch more. And if, if you look at the hidden history of the U.S. Uh, nuclear program, 
and the false alarms and so on, there were a number of occasions, well, a great many occasions, where the U.S. threatened other countries with nuclear weapons and quite a few where we came pretty close to nuclear war to the point where you could almost argue for the existence of God and or benevolent ETs uh, because <laughs> the odds should have been such that there's no way we should still be here now, <laughs> according to normal uh, calculations. Indeed. Yes, and, and I, quite, I quite agree. And, and not only that, I mean, in addition to, to the use of the threats and the circumstances, we're talking also about you know, the possible return. It's been suggested, certainly by the likes of, you know, a strategic command and so forth in the U.S. for a return to the, um, you know, the old SAC model of having 24-hour armed, nuclear-armed bombers around the clock across the globe. This is the suggestion of how to cope now with this increasingly dangerous, as they call it, dangerous environment. So we're seeing these disturbing tendencies to try to return to these models where, yes, the, the chance of a, you know, an, an accident that propels itself into war is very, very serious indeed. Uh, so uh, what about the, the Russian front? It seems that the pressure on Russia may have been dialed down a notch after that British uh, ship was sent through Russian waters off Crimea, uh, triggering some kind of a uh, confrontation and, and an alarm. It looks like they've they've dialed down tension with Russia a bit. Uh, there's that pullout from Afghanistan, which, as you point out, means that they're going to continue to bomb Afghanistan some, or at least they may. We don't know for sure from neighboring territories and ships and so on. Uh, and, and then the uh, the China tension is, is kind of on hold, too. And at this very moment that we're speaking, it seems that they may be trying to ramp up the pressure on Iran and maybe even start a war there. Or maybe it's the Israelis that are doing that. And who knows how the Americans and Europeans will react. What are your thoughts on that? Are, are they still... Uh, going to be doing more crazy things like um, when they when Trump killed Soleimani is the Biden administration capable of either doing something that insane or uh, nodding and winking while the Israelis do it well I, I think with Biden it's it's not going to be quite with with that sort of um, <laughs> I say that the the audacity of it all I don't think he's necessarily going to go out with quite like that strategy but the you know, the reality of it is, though, that he's using a lot of papering up of situations that are very serious from a security perspective. You know, he's, he's gotten – he's certainly very much, of course, on the, you know, the China bandwagon. You know, he's very much uh, also – all the messages uh, suggest uh, China threat here, China threat there, even though it may not be, you know, always to do in a military context. Uh, the fact is that uh, the language coming out of the State Department under Blinken about China – you know, being, and of course he speaks of disapproval about China being, you know, ahead of, you know, in the lead in certain areas, you know, as if there's another arms race, for example, a race in solar panels, China leads that, as Blinken said, we have to address that, China leads the world in developing other matters, say green technology, all of these things. Um, so what I see in the context of Biden, though, is that he does have these um, advisors like Sullivan and so on, and I, I certainly do see that um, there are security flashpoints you know, and potential issues there, be it Iran. Um, and with, uh, you know, as far as Russia is concerned, it's going to be more of the same. Uh, but it will be, you know, what is interesting, though, is that they're trying to work out how to deal with Putin and they're not entirely sure. And they just don't quite know from the perspective. Uh, 
you know, and then when it comes to matters of Iran, that, that, that is an interesting point because the relationship between, of course, the Biden administration and Israel will be a very telling factor as to how they approach, you know, conflict with Iran. And I certainly don't, don't necessarily see something quite along the Soleimani um, assassination point. But the fact is there is some tension there being ramped up, of course, you know, in terms of shipping and in terms of issues like that. So we can expect more activity on that front. Right. It seems to be heating up right now. I, I just got a, a message from Press TV. They want me to come on in an hour to talk about uh, Lebanon, where apparently the Israelis and Hezbollah are starting to shoot at each other. So uh, who knows? Hopefully we won't wake up tomorrow morning with uh, more war over there. Um, uh, so getting back to your article on Afghanistan, you took a, a kind of a, uh, a, a you know pessimistic uh, approach here, you know, saying that it looks like there will be a lot of uh, chaos uh, for the foreseeable future, and the West may not really be leaving. They'll keep a militarized footprint one way or another using you know, terrorism or opium as an excuse. There'll be contractors coming in. And uh, so your, your final sentence was, a Taliban victory promises a slice of violence for everybody, but so does the presence of this feeble Afghan government. And then I, I don't know if you got a chance to read that uh, Zia Sarhadi article. I, 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 I did, I did, absolutely. Yes, I did enjoy it, actually. Yes. Okay, yeah, that, that was a, a bit more um, optimistic, suggesting that the Taliban may have learned their lessons and may actually be able to unify the country. So are, are you uh, revising your opinions or not? Oh, uh, well, I have to say that just from the perspective, from that opinion about the role of the Taliban, they certainly uh, far more... Um, advanced nuance in the way they've approached it, and I think it's absolutely right to say that so they, they're certainly the force to be reckoned with, but I think you know, the, the point is, and, and this, is, this is where I feel in you know, the situation, you know, I can't know now, but the tendency here would be that, that other powers are not going to permit the Taliban to reunify or unify the state. You know, they're going to, uh, in some form or other, and, and the piece that did allude to that too, um, is now starting to fund uh, various uh, warlords that have been resurrected, like Dostum, for example, the infamous Dostum there. Um, and what I can see happening you know, is that there'll be some kind of footprint of NATO, US forces, and so on, in some way. Uh, but in addition to that, there'll be the funding of various groups that will cause instability. So the Taliban is certainly very much at the forefront in terms of efforts to form you know, pushing the Afghan government to the point where they'll just have to capitulate or you know, they'll have to step aside and so on. But the question will be whether the Taliban are permitted, as it were, to be the stabilizing force. And uh, my fear in that regard is that they will not be and there will be interference from various powers. And there's also the always the risk, and that's Afghanistan, and it's always this, uh, historically, it's always been this entity that draws in powers. Um, and, and the, the unfortunate individuals there then have to fight the next empire on its doorstep and so on, whether you know, it be the tournament of uh, shadows, as the Russians called it, uh, Russians called it the great game in the Kipling's sense, you know, that that imperils any st- project of stability there. And that's, that's why I feel you know, that it's good to see, I think one should be optimistic and hope that there'll be peace and there'll be a process where, Authority will be returned and so on, but there is always that chance there that 
there'll be meddling and there'll be interference, there'll be a financing of various factions and an excuse and so forth you know, to intervene, as it were. Right. And, and one of the factors that could destabilize Afghanistan is the Pakistan-India conflict. India in particular has been, you know, they, they've been trying to destabilize Afghanistan and Pakistan for that matter. They don't want a unified, stable Taliban-run Afghanistan, which would be relatively friendly to Pakistan. So I would imagine that would be one of the places where you would be getting uh, people funding warlords and promoting instability. Yes, sir, that, that's true. The Indian idea was a very important one, and they've also been caught a bit uh, you know, off guard with the um, advances of the Taliban in recent months and you know, have found themselves quite at odds. But by the same token, though, I think uh, it's also you know, the Indians have also have to, have to acknowledge that the Taliban are very formidable and uh, they've tried to establish back-channel contacts with them in terms of dealing with, uh, you know, whenever this transition of power takes place and so on, they do also want to at least have some kind of you know, involvement. You know, but yes, the Pakistan-Afghanistan uh, angle is, is something they're very much you know, very keen to be involved in in some way. So will we live long enough to see uh, smaller powers like Afghanistan and indeed Australia get real sovereignty and avoid meddling from larger imperial powers? Oh, if only. I mean, I, I just wonder if we'll ever see that, sir. I mean, I would like to think so, but um, the fact is, in, in Australian context, it's very hard to see that happening as long as there are these uh, very you know, significant U.S. military assets uh, on, on the continent, uh, Pine Gap being most significant, of course, uh, the evolving... They don't call it a military garrison up in Darwin, but it is essentially a revolving garrison, I prefer to use that term, of U.S. Marines. Um, and But the fact of the matter is that countries like Afghanistan and Australia in its own way, they're always being eyed as you know, what one person called prized real estate, you know, in, in terms of strategy, in terms of approach. And as long as that's the case, uh, I just don't see the prospect as it were. Well, I wish we could have a more, more convivial world where we would yes. look look at, at other countries with eyes of friendship rather than uh, rapacity and plunder. But that may have to wait a while. Uh, anyway, thank you so much, Benoit Kempmark. It's always good to have you on. Appreciate your excellent analysis and your uh, prodigious output of good articles over at CounterPunch. So, uh, thank, thank you, Kevin. Anytime. Always a pleasure. Okay. Take care. You too. Bye. That's Benoit Kempmark. I'm Kevin Barrett. This is Truth Jihad Radio on the web at truthjihad.com, where you can subscribe to my Substack a newsletter. You can either subscribe to the radio shows and get them ahead of everybody else, or you can subscribe free to get the notification newsletter. And don't forget to subscribe as well to revolution.radio, the greatest free speech network out there. All right. Truth Jihad Radio back next week. See you then. God bless.